the Veterans Banquet last year, we had a veteran that was on the first group that went into Iwo Jima, there in the Pacific. The good news about that man is that he accepted Christ. We're thankful for that. But it brought to mind again that battle that was very crucial in that uh, little island, a surface of volcanic ash. It was likened to the landscape of the moon. For this tiny but vital piece of real estate, 21,000 casualties we had in our war with Japan. But for the men that took that island, it was never a question of feeling adequate or inadequate, courage or lack of it. They just obeyed the command, go. For our Lord Jesus, it was settled in his heart that he would obey the command of his Father to die for you and to die for me. And in the passage that we're going to study for a few moments this morning, we see again the love of Jesus demonstrated to us. G. Campbell Morgan said, this is a text I, he had hardly attempted to preach on, though I have gone around it and around, it's too big. When I've read it, there's nothing else to say. If we only knew how to read it so as to produce a sense of it in the ears of people, there would be nothing to preach about. When we think here of the demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19, one of the three accounts of what we call the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Luke chapter 19, and we're going to look at a couple aspects of this important day. The Lord Jesus came the very first time here on uh, this event with uh, presentation as the king. Then he came the next day as a priest and cleansed the temple. On the next day, he came as a prophet and denounced the sin of Israel. It's very interesting when you look at the final few days of Christ's ministry here on this earth. The first thing I want us to see that this was a decision of the will of the Savior. It was a decision of love for us. And let me just read this passage for you, if you'll begin with me at verse 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, and the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found, even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace be in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Very dramatic moment, and I'm just going to have an overview here of some very key points. The Lord Jesus uh, concludes the ministry that he was having, and he now is ascending up to Jerusalem. In Israel, you're always going up to Jerusalem, no matter what direction you're coming from, because Jerusalem was up at almost 3,000 feet, and plus it was the place where the temple was. And he was ascending up, and he comes to uh, Bethany and Bethphage. Bethany was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And that would be partway up the Mount of Olives as you're looking at it from the Dead Sea, from the wilderness. Then Bethphage was somewhere on the uh, crest of the Mount of Olives, a small little village. But what we see here in this ascent to Jerusalem, that Jesus Christ came at the appointed time. He submitted to the Father's will. John 5.30, I can of my own self do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And so this will had been set at the very beginning of time. And I think we need to realize, and it's often, I often mention it, but when Jesus breathed the breath of life into Adam, he set the course to the cross. Because he knew a free will, a genuine likeness made in, the, in, in his, our, we made in his own image would cost him that crucifixion on the cross. And so the first real act of love was in the four councils of the world before man was ever created to create man. And I don't fully know even how to explain that. And then when life was actually breathed into Adam. That was a breath of love at that time. And so Jesus set his face to the cross all the way throughout human history, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through his ministry here upon this earth. It was all heading to this time up to Jerusalem. And he came in perfect accord with prophecy. Matthew 26, 18, and he said, Go into a city to such a man, this is a parallel passage here, and say unto him, and this is added, The master saith, My time is at hand. In other words, he knew exactly the right time. When someone is a person that is uh, an on time person, they know the calendar, they know the clock, they have their watch. And they are very aware of being on time. Christ was the God of eternity. He was above time and yet submitted himself to time. And he, according to the perfect will of the Father, came at this time. And it's an amazing thing that he came on the very day that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. As Charles Ryrie has pointed out that by the law of chance, and I want you to listen to this, it would require 200 billion Earths, populated with 4 billion people each, 
to come up with one person who could achieve 100 accurate prophecies without any errors in sequence. (laughs) But the Bible records not 100, but over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the most remarkable prophecies. Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to read just a couple of these verses. Verse 25 Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the prince of the, uh, of the, uh, the people of the Prince, and it goes on to the final week of years. And so I'd like to put up a chart here that... Uh, Uh, gives a little bit of the prophecy of Daniel. I do not have the time to go into this. This is worthy of your study. But this is a prophecy of seven heptads of years. Seven times 70 uh, is uh, is 490 years. 70 times 7. And so from the time that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the time that he would be rejected by his people would be 483 years. You say, well, how do you get 483 years? Well, there is one week, and if I had read the remaining verses, it speaks of how there would be one more week in which the prince, the Antichrist, would come and uh, you would have the, the abomination of desolations and then you would have the final coming of Jesus Christ. So on that chart, you can see the first seven years that are mentioned in this prophecy until you had the the streets rebuilt, and then you have the next years right up until the day in which we are talking about here in Luke chapter 19. That all totals 483 years. You go with the Jewish calendar of 360 days per year versus the calendar that we use, you come precisely to that week. And the Messiah was cut off. We live now in the church age, and this is also in the times of the Gentiles. That will end Uh, The church age will end with the rapture of the church. That could be today. And then sometime uh, after the rapture, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel and the final heptad, the final seven-year tribulation will occur in which uh, Satan will uh, control the Western world and will uh, fool Israel. And there's all kinds of things that happen, but then betray Israel Uh, The middle point, the abomination of desolation, setting himself up as God. And then you have all of the great plagues that come. Israel, though, through all of this, turns to their Messiah. And then Jesus Christ comes. And the kingdom will be set up. Folks, the Bible is true. And let me just say, if I was to go into prophecy right now, based upon what you're seeing on everyday news, you'd say, whoa, this is amazing. Christians 100 years ago couldn't believe what we're seeing today. And yet we don't know how long. Be very careful um, because the coming, uh, the rapture of the church in which we're caught up together with the Lord, if we're saved, could come at any time. It's always been that way. But it is very interesting today. We can see very clearly how an antichrist could work. But my point is this, without going into any more detail, what I just read to you from Luke chapter 19 
fulfills the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Many, many folks that have been Jewish scholars have come to Christ from this prophecy because there is no denying the fact of the preciseness of the fact that Jesus Christ came at the appointed time. And uh, so this is very significant. All of the heavenly host understood what was happening. This was no incident of happenstance. This was not created by the crowd. It is Jesus that said, go get the donkey. It was Jesus that led his disciples to go into Jerusalem, and they were the ones that caused the crowd. This is the only time that Jesus ever allows the crowd to give a claim to him for he's coming in as the king. All other times, he would go back out into solitary place. He would tell them not to declare. But this is the one time that he did it because he was coming according to the prophecy of the Old Testament. He was coming as the king of Israel, as the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. So it's a wonderful reality that when we look at this, this uh, Jesus Christ followed perfectly in his humanity, though God, the will of the Father. And he came in the appointed way. Uh, he came in the face of real danger. Uh, days before uh, he, uh, the uh, religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, who were empowered by the Roman government, they were really coming after him. He knew good and well all that was happening. And to have this public display of who he was was going to infuriate them and bring their opposition of him to a crisis, which it clearly did and led to the crucifixion. But remember, he was not afraid of the crucifixion, for that's why he came. He came on that perfect time. Uh, John eleven fifty seven 57 says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he would show it that they might take him. And so, from a human standpoint, you'd hide. Jesus made himself known publicly. And, of course, we see the deriding of the Pharisees in verse 39 when they spoke out directly to him. This fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. The disciples didn't understand the significance of this until after the resurrection. But uh, this was a, a very important time. Verse John chapter 12 speaks of this. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that had, they had done these things unto him. And all of this began to come together. Now, many times people think Jesus came humbly in to the uh, uh, city on a donkey because he was on a donkey. Oh, no, that was how a king came in uh, at a time of coronation. Uh, in uh, the uh, anointing of Solomon to be the king, he did exactly the same thing. He came in on a donkey. 1 Kings 1, verse 32. And King David said, Call me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah 
the son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king. And the king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him their king over Israel, and blow ye with the trumpet, and say, God save King Solomon. And so he came without any apology as the son of David who had the right to the throne as God Almighty, the Messiah that had been prophesied, the one who came on the very day that he was to come, he came unapologetically as the king. And Israel rejects him in those next days. Now, it was a humble coming in, not because of the donkey, but it was a humble coming in because the way that was done, the palm branches and the clothes laid out and so forth, uh, in the Roman aspect, you would have had the regal coming in of a king in a much different way. But this was coming in according to the will of God in full submission realizing his position and as a beautiful picture of his love for us uh, leading, uh, coming in that way. Matthew 21, 8 says, And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And so it was quite, a, it was quite an event. The disciples were actually leading out in this and people were crying out, Hosanna, and you had them putting their clothes down and uh, their robes and the, and the palm branches. And, of course, there was this great desire for the Messiah to come. And this is exactly the way that they would think that he was to come. He presents himself as a king. And I want you to realize that he wanted to make it very clear that he was fulfilling prophecy. He wanted to make it clear who he was. He had already declared not only the fact that he was the Messiah, but that he was the Son of the living God, the great I Am. All of this had been clear. They had been unwilling to understand it and believe, the, believe it, most of them. But everything was there so that after he had risen from the grave, the clarity of who he was would have already been there and people would have understood. Believe me, this incident burned into the minds of the people. And so it's a, it, it, and also just the whole supernatural aspect of this. Uh, go and find a cold tide. Go to that certain house. You will find it. That, that man will let you do it. All of those things happened exactly like Jesus said they would happen. In other words, the hand of God was on every part of this whole incident. And uh, the way that the crowd began to respond and rejoice and praise God. Uh, they say the right thing. Blessed be the king. Now you've got to realize that's what they had wanted him to be. And unfortunately, their understanding of what their king was going to do was not to bring deliverance for their lives spiritually, but to bring deliverance from Rome physically and humanly. And that's why when after this time, Christ continues to minister but does not go against the Roman government, that's why there could be the persuasion of the people by the Sanhedrin to cry out, crucify him, because they wanted someone to meet their human 
needs. And isn't that the way of man? It's amazing how multitudes will go after someone that promises human deliverance. Well, as this all occurs, and after he's confronted by the Pharisees, we find the second thing I want us to see in the final few verses that we're going to look at. Not only a decision of the will, but it's a decision of his heart. And uh, we read in verse 41, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. And then the way it's written, it's, there's more that he wanted to say, but now they're hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee on every side. And he shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. He understood what was going to happen. He understood his role. He understood here the heart of the Father for a lost world. Folks, John 3.16 ought not become too familiar. For God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've been to the spot traditionally where they say that he stopped and looked over Jerusalem. And it's quite a sight of Jerusalem at that point. The temple would have been blazing and it's in the sun and its beauty, the Herodian temple and the, and the city all around. And, uh, and he came and he wept. Weeping here is sobbing, crying out loud when someone cannot control themselves. Folks, he doesn't just sit there with a few tears. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but the word leaves open the fact of some pretty demonstrable um, sobs, crying, and wailing at this point. You see, Jesus was truly human, but he was fully God. He knew exactly why he was coming. He knew what the future would be. He says what the future is going to be here. He also knew the eternal destiny of those that would not turn. He did know the great victory of the thousands that would turn. But what happens at this moment? His humanity cannot contain the love of divinity. And he weeps. It all comes together. My friends, to have the creator of the universe, this vast universe, as scientists still here and there find another sun farther out there, another star out. It's so vast they cannot even begin to measure it. The God that did all of that, for him to come and to do what he did and to literally suffer physically and then above all spiritually for us, the only explanation is love that is absolutely infinite. It is, it is divine. It is glorious. It is beyond our understanding. And for a moment, the explosion of that love is seen here 
through the humanity of Jesus Christ. Seeing Christ robed in flesh gives us a really clear understanding of who God really is. My friend, God does love you. He really does. And as he looked at, at Jerusalem, this city over the years that had withstood the heart of God, he had a broken heart for them. And that love was going to carry him through a difficult few days to a horrible cross. Matthew 26, 42 speaks of in just a few days he would be in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve after, after the Passover on the eve of his crucifixion. And he would make those, that famous statement, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. His humanity couldn't, I mean, no human being could, could handle what he was going to face. And yet his perfect humanity led by a totally divine spirit, could say, thy will be done. But I'm telling you, it was such a great pressure that he sweat great drops of blood. So you see from this weeping over to the Garden of Gethsemane and sweating great drops of blood, the enormous reality of the sacrifice of Christ. His passion did not start on the cross. It started eternity past. And it built to the crescendo there on the Mount of Olives and came to the, to the full submission in the garden and then the great glory of the cross. But friend, you were in mind all the way through that progression. He had committed Revelation 13, 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not found, whose names are not written in the life, excuse me, the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His sacrifice would fully, fully cover the penalty for our sin. Pastor R.I. Williams telephoned his sermon topic to the Norfolk Ledger Dispatch. The Lord is my shepherd. They asked, well, is that all? And he replied, that's enough. And the church page carried Mr. Williams' sermon topic as, the Lord is, is my shepherd. That's enough. <laughs> and he liked that idea. In fact, he titled his message that Sunday once he saw that. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. That's enough. He has done it all. It is all in Christ. But friends, Jesus loves you. He wept. And he understood the need of the people. He understood that in just a matter of a few decades, that city was going to be torn apart. The Jewish people were going to be decimated. There was going to be heartache after heartache. Now, obviously, in the middle of all of that, there were going to be thousands and thousands come to Christ as their Messiah, uh, Jesus as their Messiah, the Christ, and they would go around the world uh, giving the gospel, but awful plight for the Jewish people. And my friends, every time you get to the time in which you have that um, crowd there outside of the fortress of Antonia in the courtyard of the temple. And when Jesus is presented and Barnabas, uh, Barabbas is, is presented and they cry out, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. I cannot read that without shuddering. 
and all the suffering. If there's any dear Jewish friend here today, I want you to know that Jesus specially wept over you. He died for you just like he died for the whole world. But he wept over what the Jewish people have had to go through. They didn't have to. He gave them every opportunity. He did it right there at this triumphal entry. He was presented as the king in full fulfillment of prophecy. But blindness and darkness were on the eyes of his people. Oh, Jesus really does love. You heard several weeks ago there at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. That's another strong word. He, was, he sobbed for the people. He truly cared. And friends, let me just say, for us as believers, how can we, if that's our Savior and He loves us that much, how can we not allow that love to be seen through us? He has chosen for us to be the vessels in which His glory is, uh, uh, is indwelling. The very Spirit of Christ lives through us. C.E. Matthews was a warm-hearted evangelistic preacher, and he told another preacher of an experience he had during a revival meeting. In the community was a lost man who just resisted the efforts of many preachers to win him to Christ. He was on the verge of eternity. One evening, just before the revival service, uh, this man, Brother Matthews, and the pastor sat in a car with this very man. They sought to reach the lost man by explaining the plan of salvation to him, but to no avail. All of a sudden, the reality of the love of God for that man broke through the heart of Brother Matthews, and he just burst into tears. He couldn't help himself. That broke the man's resistance. He received Christ as his Savior, and later that evening, he made it very public that he was saved. You see, people are led to the Lord by people. People who represent the one who wept over Jerusalem, who wept at the grave of Lazarus. Friends, the matter of evangelism is not just a duty in which we do what we ought to do. It is a matter of letting Christ and his love and his person uh, work its way through our life so that people can tell that God really does love them. There is something about person-to-person -person contact that is powerful. And I've seen that happen many times. A person who would never even thought of, of yielding to Christ when you give with a heart of compassion the gospel, the Spirit of God can come and that resistance can be broken. And so we need to have the same deep compassion and we need to respond to His love. This happened because Christ obviously wanted those around Him to know how much He loved he would say, as we mentioned last Sunday, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do from the cross. His desire is that everyone respond. The song says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he hath made me 
the lad. Come to me. Come unto me and rest. My friends, it's very simple. Jesus came so that you can have all that he created you to have and more. He wants your life to have his life, his eternal life. He wants that eternal relationship. And believers, if we're going to have the heart of Christ for others, we have got to have a heart of trust in him to come to him and believe that he is all in all. Nothing else is more important than our Savior and his heart and his cause. Christians who get a hold of the love of God are never the same. And then the world around them is not the same either. Jesus changed the course of the world. The one who wept. The one who kept the Father's will. The one who cried out for mercy for all of us. And my friends, we need to be part of letting that love shine through us in this day. Let's pray.